Well, we are so glad you're here for part one of this series, and I hope that you'll commit to being here uh, for all four parts of this series. If you're watching online, we're glad, uh, wherever in the world you may be, and then those of you who are there in Somerset, uh, we are so glad you're there as well. Matter of fact, Creekers, we welcome everybody online and welcome Somerset uh, online with us as well. I don't know what your story is. You probably know more about my story than, than other people that you're sitting around because you get to hear me talk a lot throughout the course of the year. But, but I was made to go to church as a kid. I don't know if that's part of your story. Anybody made to go to church as a kid? Yeah, a few of us. And, and look, we turned out okay. And, and we're not absolutely screwed up for it. And, and we were made to go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. A couple times a year, I was made to go spring and fall, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, because that was revival week. And... Uh, only liberals didn't go to revival, and, and my family, we were not liberal. We were conservative, and so we, we went to church. As I was made to go to church my entire life, and, and I think a lot about church. I, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that I was raised in church and made to go to church, and, and I feel like I understand church because of it. I grew up in a small country church, and I've been in larger-sized churches, uh, attended a church that ran about 1,000, attended a church that ran about 7,000, and so and here we are, and uh, I'm a pastor today, and so I feel like I've been around. I know some things, I've seen some things, but when I think about growing up in church, and, and if you grew up in church, maybe you can think about this as well, maybe it was true for you, or maybe it was just true for me, but I noticed uh, that we talked a lot about eternal life, and we talked a lot about heaven consequently. So, you know, you show up week in and week out, and, and at some point during the song service and the sermon part of the service, uh, somebody was talking about eternal life, and somebody was talking about heaven. And, and so almost every single week, week without exception, it seems to me looking back that, you know, the church talked about how great life after death would be. That was just part of it. Week in and week out, we talked about how great life after death would be, how great life after death would be. And so we had songs uh, to back it up, right? You know, the music minister would stand up and he'd say, hey, would you turn to such and such? And when we all get to here, you know, he'd do that little thing right there, have no idea what it meant. Is he making the sign of the cross? Is this a signal? Is there something to be worried about? When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, right? And, and you know, everybody's just out there singing. It's like, yeah, heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And you know, then, then there were songs, you know, we didn't have projectors, liberals did that. And, and, and we had song books, right? But even some songs, we didn't need a song book because the lyrics were so simple, like the chorus of one of the famous, you know, favorite, you know, hymns about heaven, you know, when the rose called up yonder, right? And so that's all you had to remember because the chorus was when the rose called up yonder, 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 I'll be there. And so there it was. I mean, and we would sing that. And then, you know, have you ever heard this song, How Beautiful Heaven Must Be? Sweet home of the happy and free, fair haven of rest for the weary, how beautiful heaven must be. You know, and then I'll fly away, hallelujah, by and by. You know, when my life is o'er, I never knew why we just didn't say over, but it didn't work, it didn't fit the poetry of the song. So when my life is o'er, try that in the paper at school. Uh, what is this, o'er? No, it's over. We sing it all the time in my church, but it works. And it's like, okay. So we had all these songs about heaven and then there were sermons about heaven. And again, I'm kind of a church expert and I, I grew up in this and I'm not making fun of it. I'm just, hey, this is what it was. I noticed that, you know, we called it hiccup preaching. Anybody Anybody grow up a hiccup preaching? You know what I'm talking about? Hiccup. Hey, 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 man, Lord our God, hallelujah. Right? So, you know, hiccup preaching was for sin, right? Hub preaching was for just about anything else, but, but heaven required a different kind of sermon. It was what I would refer to as the billy goat sermon. 
I tell you, children, one day uh, we'll sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and uh, find rest for our weary souls. Uh, we'll lay down our troubles and trials, children, and uh, in the sweet by, you know, that was it. I mean, that was it. There was the Billy Gun. I was sitting back there and I, I, I thinking, you know, as a teenager, I was a horrible person then. <laughs> May still be. Some of you are like, is God going to strike him dead right now? Is, 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 is this going to happen? And um, if it's not happened already, it probably won't happen, but boy, it'd be funny if it did, wouldn't it? It'd be like, whoa. <laughs> okay, <laughs> move on while well, I still, well, still can, right? And so, you know, we have the sermons, we have the song, but looking back and trying to take inventory uh, of what my story was and, and what I've heard other people say, here's a conclusion that I've come to. Uh, the church told us about how great life would be after death but very little about how great life could be before death. This is just an observation from the church I grew up in and the tradition I grew up in, and maybe it's different for you and I'm glad, but for many of us who grew up in church, or maybe if you are not a person who grew up in church, you're not a Jesus follower, but from what you've picked up from Jesus followers that you know, uh, we talk a lot about life after death and how great life after death will be, but the church I grew up in and the church at large still today when I listen in doesn't talk a lot about how great life could be before death. And I think, you know, it's good to be able to tell this first part that life is gonna be great after death, that there is such a thing as eternal life. But the thing that the church can't forsake in the 21st century and the part that we've gotta revisit and what makes the gospel good news is that not only is life after death going to be great, but life before death can be great as well. But growing up in the church, it seemed like the message of the church was this, don't live life too big, right? Don't live life too big. Because if you live life too big, uh, that could be a bad thing. Matter of fact, you need to be cautious. All you church people, Jesus people, Christian people, be cautious not to live too big. You say, well, why would, why would that, why would that you know, be the message of the church? Because in the church that I grew up in, it was almost like they were saying, living big could lead to fun. And we all know that fun leads to sin. And it's kind of it. So you needed to avoid music. Avoid music that seemed fun because if you listen to music that feels fun and seems fun, you may end up drinking. If you end up drinking, you're gonna end up dancing. If you end up drinking and dancing, everybody knows that leads to sex, I mean sin. And, and, and so, <laughs> You, you can't do that, right? And so, you know, we had a whole thing. And so the thing was be overly cautious. It would be better for you not to live because if you live, chances are you're gonna sin. So wait to do all your living until after you're dead because fun runs the risk of worldliness. And we know that if you follow Jesus, you're not supposed to love the world nor the things of the world. And so they get up, you know, in front of us and they say, I tell you the funnest things are the things of God. And we didn't want to say it out loud, but we're thinking, no, it's not. <laughs> this seems boring. Matter of fact, the most boring thing that I do all week is on Sunday. That's how some of us grew up. It was like the church was the most boring thing. It seemed like the most unfun thing in our week. As a matter of fact, and the reason was because, and again, we would never say this out loud, because we looked around and the people that we attended church with seemed like some of the most uptight, unfun people on the planet. And so after a while, Christian became synonymous with uptight and unfun because in the church I grew up in, I was related to 97% of the people. So I would eat dinner with half of them on Sunday. So I kind of knew, 
kind of knew people. And it seemed like from my perspective that the Christian people I knew were just as nervous as non-Christian people. Now the people I grew up in, they didn't want you to have a drink, but they would give you a nerve pill. <laughs> they, they would never encourage you to take a drink. They said, honey, I, doctor gave me this, it'll help you. <laughs> You're breaking federal law. This could only be my church. I don't know. <laughs> they were just as afraid as everybody else. They seemed as negative as everybody else. Angry, discouraged as everybody else. You look around and they looked as miserable as everybody else. Melancholy as everybody else. And we tried to be happy. But we, we just, no, no one had ever taught us how to be. We had great songs with great content, right? Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it, sweet by and by, or whatever. But it was great lyrics, but we would sing it like this. So cheer up, my brother, live in the sun. Doesn't that just pick you right up? I mean, isn't the tone of the song laced with gladness? No, it sounds like we're on a death march. We, we didn't know how to do it. And then testimony time. Testimony time solidifies that all of this is true. They would get up and testify, you know, and this guy would stand up. He's in the 40s and 50s. I just want to give a word of testimony, Brother Bill. I tell you, before I came to Jesus, I was out there in the world. and I was having all the fun a man could have. I was out with good friends and laughing and cutting up and having a good time and having good dinner. I tell you, but then I found Jesus. <laughs> And everything changed. It's been troubles and trials and tribulations. And brother, I tell you, I'm just trying to, just trying to keep on going on. And, and all the non-Christians are thinking, tell me again why I need Jesus. What? Now, all of that is very much true. I know I kind of hyperbolize it just a little bit, but, but it is. It's kind of the way Christians have presented ourselves. And the reason that that's a problem is because it's so unlike Jesus. That version of faith is so unlike Jesus because if you read through the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with any type of honesty, you have to admit and you have to acknowledge because you can so clearly see it, that Jesus was hated. Jesus was hated by the religious establishment of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Herodians in a large part because he seemed to enjoy life too much. And in their mind, someone of faith and someone who loved God and someone who loved the scriptures could not enjoy life that much. Matter of fact, you read it, Matthew tells us about it. That Jesus seemed to enjoy food a little too much. Jesus seemed to enjoy wine a little too much. Jesus seemed to enjoy dinner parties a little too much. And they hated him for it because how could you believe in God, believe in the scriptures, have faith that's real and genuine and authentic and enjoy life that much? And we know Jesus must have been like this, that he lived life to the full, that he enjoyed life because the kids loved him. And because the kids loved him, we kind of we pick up on the fact that he was not a sultastic curmudgeon. He was not somebody who was grumpy and he was not a bellyacher. He wasn't somebody always going around with complaining and this horrible countenance and this angriness on his face. No, kids loved him. People far from God were attracted to Jesus because his life, it was magnetic. And in many cases, it almost seemed to be contagious. And so Jesus, we've looked at this the past few weeks. Jesus showed up and this is what Jesus said. 
Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have, talk to me, what is this? Everybody, one more time, you may have what? You may have life and have it to the full. Jesus said, I've come that you may have eternal life in the next life, but I have come also to give you a better life in this life, a life that is rich and satisfying, better than you could ever imagine, a life that is so full that your life begins to spill out on other people. Your life is so full it spills out on your wife. It's so full it spills out on your husband. It's so full as mom and dad. It spills out on your children. It spills out on the people that you work with. It spills out on the people who work with you, work for you. Life's so full that you begin to be magnetic. That your life and the way that you enjoy life and the way that you see life and the way that you process life begins to be something that is almost contagious. It's so big that people we want to live life the way you live life. See, because the fact of the matter is, this is the gospel. Jesus came to offer eternal life after death and extraordinary life before death. Now, we got to get both of those part of the messaging because both of those are part of the message. Jesus came to offer eternal life after death. We heard a lot about that. But we've not heard very much in the church, and the church needs to rediscover this part of the gospel. We need to rediscover this part of Jesus' message that makes a profound, significant difference every single day we wake up. This makes a difference in how you go to work. This makes a difference in how you come home from work. This makes a difference in how you go to class and come back from class. This makes a difference in every part of your life. And because we're Jesus followers, we also should be known for life. Matter of fact, some people ought to think of us as ambassadors of fun. We should be known as a people who sing. Do you know that the scriptures talk about that God has given us a song to sing? Do you know that both the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about the importance of singing? Because singing is so connected to life. Matter of fact, when you bump into somebody or somebody at your house, they're whistling or they're singing, what do we do? We walk up to them and say, well, you must be in a good but do you know that psychologists, researchers, and even the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter, they knew something, you know, way before any of us knew anything about anything. Researchers now tell us that people don't sing because they're in a good mood. They're in a good mood because they're singing. But you go to the local church, where else can you go in the world and get with other people and sing other than a concert? And you have to buy a ticket for that. Most of you come for free right? So, you know, you just show up, you get to sing, but you look in the most churches. Right? Isn't that not how many of us have experienced church? When we're supposed to be a people who have a song, a people who sing, that singing affects us, our countenance, our mood, our attitude, it does something to us. We ought to be a people. I know you're not going to think this spiritual, but that's okay. I'm up here and you're not. So <laughs> here it is smiling. Do you know that following Jesus ought to affect those muscles in our face? So that's not spiritual. It is more spiritual than any of us would ever want to imagine it to be. It's true. Smiling. Do you know that smiling lowers blood pressure? Some of you are taking medicine right now to lower your blood pressure. If you would have smiled more in life, perhaps. <laughs> now I'm not your doctor and I'm not giving you medical advice. Do you know that it can lift your mood? It could be a mood enhancer. 
Some of you do other things to enhance your mood. Perhaps smiling. Hey, look, you want to try it? Let's try it. Just smile. Let's see them. Come on, some of you never done it. It's okay. Look at your neighbor and just smile. Come on. <laughs> you have it in you. Amen. Yes. See, miracles are in the house today. Isn't that amazing? I mean, smile. I mean, most of the time, it's weird after a moment, isn't it? It's like we're launching a TV ministry. Right? I mean, it's like, hey, we're, no, we're not used to it. Do you know that laughter, you know, we ought to be a people who live life. Not that we're laughing all the time, but do you know that we ought to laugh more than most of us laugh? Do you know that people are consistently laughing less? It's on the decline year after year. And Christians are right in there in the midst of it. Do you know that laughing releases endorphins? Do you know that it also lifts your mood? Do you also know that it's a pain reliever? It increases the oxygen in your blood and also relaxes your muscles. You just got rid of four prescriptions. <laughs> and do you know that even fake laughter works? It does. Research shows it. You want to try it? <laughs> come on, let's try it. <laughs> now, come on now. That's not loud enough. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, oh my God, where have they brought me today? It's weird. We're not even used to it. We ought to be known differently because we are different because we follow Jesus. But what if our life really was extraordinary? Let's, let's just make it a little bit more spiritual. What if we were quick to listen and slow to wrath? What, what, what if we were never losing hope? What if we never failed to love? What if we made choices that minimized our regret? What if we were known for joy in life? What if that's how most people around us thought about us? But it's not really important whether they think about you like that right now or not, because we really can't undo what's been done. But we can change what happens from this point forward. And the best way to change the rest of your life to a point where you embrace and enjoy life tomorrow is to begin to do it today. Matter of fact, being known for having an extraordinary life which should be synonymous with following Jesus. Being known for having extraordinary life tomorrow begins with living an extraordinary life today. And if anybody understood this principle of what will be reality tomorrow has to begin today was a guy by the name of Moses. Now, if you don't know anything about Moses, uh, Moses, he grew up in the court of Pharaoh in the first 40 years of his life. And in Egypt, he learned to think like an Egyptian. He learned to act like an Egyptian. He learned to talk like an Egyptian. And he even learned to walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> and, and, and that all happened right down in Egypt. It was incredible. And for the first 40 years of his life, he was trained in the court of Pharaoh. And then at 40, he discovered, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm, I'm a Jewish man. And the Jewish people were slaves to Pharaoh. And so it caused an identity crisis for Moses. And so he killed a man. And we're talking about, we're talking about one of the heroes of the Bible. He killed a man. Then he fled from the authorities and he went to a place where there was no extradition treaties. So he went and he hid out from the authorities after he killed a man. He went on the backside of the desert and for the next 40 years, he's gonna work as a shepherd. And he's gonna take care of a guy by the name of Jethro's sheep. And it worked out for Moses because he ended up marrying Jethro's daughter. And so he ended up working for his father-in-law. Now, I didn't say it was a perfect situation, but he was working for his father-in-law for 40 years as a shepherd on the backside of the desert over there in Midian. And then at the end of those 40 years, God showed up and said, Moses, I have a destiny for your life. 
I want you to go back to Egypt, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then I want you to lead them to the promised land. Well, after a long drawn out story, I don't have time to tell you, Moses does eventually lead the nation of Israel out in what's called the Exodus. You can read about it at the end of the book of Genesis and throughout the book of Exodus. Then these people that were slaves, they're now free. They were happy about it, oh, for about a minute. These were not, these Israelites, these Jewish folk, they, they were not known as the happiest people in the world. They, they were easily disrupted emotionally. And so they make a mistake. They don't believe God. They disobey God. And so God says, okay, you're going to suffer the consequences of your own choices. And you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses, you're going to be their pastor. And Moses is like, why me? And so he was a pastor of a very challenging group of people. Now, I don't know what that's like because you're an incredible group of people. But I have friends in the ministry and they tell me about their church and they're not that incredible. Now, let me say, if you think some other churches and some other pastors and stories you've heard and whatnot can be a challenging thing to think about, let me tell you, Moses pastoring the nation of Israel, that was a whole other thing. They were never satisfied. They were never happy. They always had a sad countenance. They're always bickering, complaining, moaning, belly aching. God gives them manna, bread from heaven. Were they happy about it? For about a minute. Then they're like, is that all you got up there, God? Is that all your kitchen makes? <laughs> they're complaining. God fed them bread from heaven, and it didn't even satisfy them. God gave them water from a rock, and they're, we, we, where's the meat? I'm a steak and potato kind of, where's the meat? I mean, they, they just could be happy. They say, Moses, you brought us out here. You got us in all this trouble. We want to go back to Egypt. We had it made in Egypt. That's how dumb they were. They were slaves. We had it made in Egypt. It was, we had cucumbers and melons and grapes and fruit. Oh, it was incredible. It was like Club Med. And they would always complain. And, and that was the people that Moses had to deal with. Now, part of them wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, God said that an entire generation that had decided not to trust God would die in the wilderness because of their unbelief. So for 40 years, that generation would live with regret and die with regret so that the next generation who would be led by Joshua would go into the promised land, all right? And so that, that's the context for Moses' life. And so for those 40 years, he's gonna be in the wilderness. For the first 40, he was in Egypt. The next 40, he was in Midian being a shepherd. For this last 40, he's gonna be pastoring this cantankerous, unhappy group of people in the wilderness. And so Moses is pastor of that group of people. You have to imagine there were people dying all the time. I mean, the generations, I mean, there's a generation of people dying off. So it's funeral after funeral after funeral after funeral after funeral, funeral, funeral. And they're coming to Moses, you know, the senior pastor saying, Moses, there's somebody else wanting you to do their funeral. And they're wanting to do it Thursday at three o'clock. And Moses said, I, I know, I've already got another funeral at three o'clock. And said, Moses, no, they said, it's gotta be at three o'clock and it's gotta be you. And you tell them, no, I, I can't do it. I'll do it at four. And, no, Moses, I, I asked them about another time and they said, if you don't do their funeral, then, then they're gonna think about moving their membership to another nation. And, 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 and Moses said, but we got other pastors and we can let one of these other pastors do that funeral. I don't want, no, they want you, you're their pastor. And they said, they're out of here. And Moses said, well, you're gonna tell them to get out of here because I don't have time. I can, be, you know, I can only imagine some of the stuff that must have went on and some of the conversations that Moses had to deal with. And, and so Moses was always burying people and there was death, you know, just news after, you know, day after day after day, news of people's death. In the midst of all of that, Moses learns an incredible lesson. 
And lucky for all of us, he wrote it down. Because Moses learned a profound lesson about living from dying. Moses learned a profound lesson about life from death. Because he heard about death and saw death. He watched people die with regret. He saw people who you know, just, just wasted their life and died with regret. And he watched it day after day after day. And he learned a great lesson about living from people dying. And he wrote it down. And he wrote it down in a psalm, Psalm 90. Most scholars believe that this, this is the second oldest piece of literature in the Old Testament scriptures next to the book of Job. And this is what Moses wrote. He said, Lord... I can just imagine just on a day when he's just heard about one person after the other just dying and he, he goes to his tent and he goes over in the corner and he just starts writing this down. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, that's creation. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so Moses frames life for everybody, for him, for the nation, for us. And he frames their life, his life, and our life within a larger context. He said, God, you are our refuge from everlasting to everlasting. Every generation has found their refuge in you. And so here's what Moses learned about life from death. He learned that all of our lives are but a snippet. It's a story within a larger story that your life, my life, his life, their life. It was a short story. It had a beginning, it had an ending, but it was within the context of a larger story. Not only the human story, but Moses understood that his story was part of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the story of God and how God had promised that he was gonna send a savior into the world. And so Moses, he understood that he was just a small part of a larger story. He says, God, you are the one who exists outside of time. God, we are the ones who exist within time. God, you are the creator of time. You are the creator of the time-space continuum. God, you are outside of time because you are timeless and spaceless and immaterial. But God, here we are within time, within space. And God, you are the constant. We are temporary. God, you are the eternal part of this story. We are a small part of this story that is part of a much larger story. And Moses' point is this, you gotta understand it, I gotta understand. If your life's gonna have meaning and my life's gonna have meaning, that God is before us, God is after us, and therefore God is above us. And that our story, as important as it is, your story is important, my story is important, our stories are important. It's important to us, it's important to the people who love us, it's important to God. But our story is just a small part of a much larger story. And he goes on, he says, God, you turn people back to dust. Right, he's just thinking about this, right? I mean. It's, he's inundated with these stories of death and he's watching a whole gener generation die with regret. He says, God, you turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. And his point is no matter how great of a life you live, no matter how healthy, how wealthy, it doesn't matter. In the end, every single one of our stories end in the same place with us returning to dust. We were formed from the dust we will go back to the dust. And so Moses says, this is what we all have in common. We came from the same place, we're going to the same place. And no matter what your story looks like in between, we share those bookends in common. So he goes on. He says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. 
or like a watch in the night. And so Moses, he's, he's thinking deep and he's out there in the middle of the Sinai desert and he, he's thinking about life, he's thinking about death and he's thinking about here we are, we are within time. We live within this thing called time and we even have ways to measure time. We measure it in years and we measure it in months and we measure it in weeks and we measure it in days and in hours and in seconds. And we are, we are right in the midst of time, but God, you, you are outside of time. So God, you don't think about time the way that we do and you don't have the same perspective of time like we do. And so he's thinking about what God must think about when God looks down upon time. And he says, God, a thousand years to you. A thousand years to you must be like a, a day. But then he says, no, 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 no. A thousand years to you, God, must be like a watch in the night. That was three hours time. That was three hours time. Now, if a thousand years in God's perspective is like three hours of time, then what must our lifetime look like from God's perspective? That was you. That was you. That was me. If a thousand years is like three hours of time, God looks down on our little bitty short stories and they're like. And Moses, he says, we need to think about this. We need to think about just how quick life is, how fleeting life is. And he goes on. He says, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but in the evening it's dry and withered. It's like grass. It's fresh and then it's old. It's here and then it's gone. The point is, life is short. Now, some people may hear this and say, well, that sounds fatalistic. That sounds negative. That sounds pessimistic. I'm getting depressed. I'm getting discouraged. Lord, where's my nerve peel? Uh, <laughs> we don't like to think about this. We don't want to deal with this. And some people would say, oh, so the point is, life is so short, it doesn't matter. Just do, just go, just go live. Do what you need to do, do what you want to do. Life is so short, it doesn't matter. Life is so short, nothing matters. But that is not Moses' point. Moses' point is this. Life is so short that everything matters. It's not that life is so short, nothing matters. But life is so short. Everything about your life matters. Every day of your life matters. Every hour of your day matters. That's what he's saying. Life is so short. It's like grass. It's like a shadow. It's like a vapor. Your life, my life is important because it's so short. Everything between birth and death is significant. And he says, our days may come to 70 years or 80 because he was watching people in the desert. Some of them would live to 70. Some would live to 80 because they only had 40 years and they were gonna die off before the end of that 40 years. If our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass as we fly away. He says, listen, doesn't matter how great your life is. You can't avoid sorrow. You can't avoid pain. You can't avoid tragedy. Living life to the full and having an extraordinary life is not about a life that's free from those things. You can't be free from those things. You can't be free from irritations and aggravations and inconveniences. But 
We should be characterized by life, even within the context of tragedy and loss and pain, that our lives look different even within the storylines that we all share in common. And so Moses, as he thinks about all this, he thinks about how short life is. That's our life. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's grass, it's a shadow, it's a vapor. Moses knew what all of us knew. Life is going by so fast. And he says, this is what we need to pray then. This is a prayer for you and this is a prayer for me and this is a prayer for all of us. He says, in light of all of this, God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let's make it personal. God, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. God, I, I see all of this and life is, life is so short. And because life is so short, everything is significant. Everything matters. There's no time off, there's no day off. Everything matters. Everything is important. So God, teach me to number my days. Teach me to understand that I only have a certain number of days. I only have a certain amount of days and God let me count those days because if I count those days and I realize that life is temporary, I will live life differently between birth and death. My story will be different because I'm numbering my days. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying the brevity of life affects the quality of life. When we understand the brevity of life, it affects our quality of life. Here's what he's saying. I know, I know we don't like this, this is uncomfortable. He says, when we focus on death, we see life more clearly. When we focus on death, we see life more clearly. We don't wanna think about death and we live like that. He says, it's not morbid. This, this, is, this is not a negative thing. You know you're gonna die. I know I'm gonna die. So why don't we focus in on death? Because here's what Moses said. Moses says that we learn to live when we begin to learn how to die. That wrestling with the idea of death being confronted day in and day out with the prospect of death sets us free to live. And knowing what we know about the gospel, that there is a great life after death, knowing that Jesus conquered sin and death, we are set free to live. Teach me to number my days. Let's all just pray that together. Let's say it out loud. Teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. One more time, let's say it. Teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. God, show me the best means to the best end. Wisdom. God, teach me to number my days so I'm a better father. God, teach me to number my days so I'm a better husband. God, teach me to number my days so I follow you closer. God, teach me to number my days so I can see opportunities to bring you glory. God, teach me to number my days so I enjoy time with my friends. God, teach me to number my days so I learn to laugh. God, teach me to number my days so that I'm conscious to smile. God, teach me to number my days so I reach over and I hug my friend and I say, you love, I'm telling you, I love you, you've made a difference in my life. Teach me to number my days so that I do the things I know I ought to do because I've only got a certain amount of days to do it. 
If you want to start learning to live, start thinking about your death. That's what he says. His point is this. If you want your days to count, then count your days. The average person in this country, the average person in the U.S. lives a little over 78 years, 78 point something something years. This was you when you were born, if you're average. Now you could be below average, you could be above average. Personally, I'm trusting God for above average, amen, <laughs> glory to God. Now I'm, I'm, I'm trusting God for better, I'm trusting God for the rapture. I'm going up live, bro. Okay, and if you're not a Christian, you have no idea what I'm talking about, so just forget it, all right? Here it is, 28,000 marbles, 28,000. I don't know if you've ever ran your hands through life. It's amazing. I don't know if you've ever held life in your hands. It's amazing, all right? Now, 28,000. You're not conscious when you're born. Nobody tells you about this. You're not even thinking about this in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth. You're not, but this, this is if you're average. This is, what, this is what you were born with. The scriptures say that all of us were given a certain amount of days and God says you can't go past it. Now, certainly we may be able to shorten it, but we can't extend it and God knew and you can talk about all that. And, but 28,000 days, that's what we get. 78 or so years. Now, let's jump forward. 24 year old. If you're here in 24, you're out of college, maybe, you know, you've wrapped up graduate school, you're in the middle of graduate school, maybe you went to trade school, maybe you just jumped straight into a career. This is, this is you, and we put it in a taller one to make it feel more full because you're just getting out there, you're kind of becoming an adult, now you know how to think about these things. And at 24, you have 20,000 days left. 20,000 days. 20,000 days, 20,000 opportunities to wake up, go to sleep, 20,000 opportunities to decide what happens in the middle, 20,000 days of choices, 20,000 opportunities to, there it is. I mean, that's, that's you, 24 years old. Now, oh, oh, this is a 40 year old, of which I am one, as of April. Zip. 14 or, so th 14 or so thousand days, not weeks, not months, days. It's four, four, 14,000, could be less, could be more. God, teach me to number my days because I wanna have wisdom. Help me to count my days because I want my days to count. And those are opportunities to do what God's called me to do. And that's opportunities to be who God's called me to be. And that's opportunities to lead my sons and lead my family. And this is, a, this is opportunities to get up and, and teach the scriptures. This is an opportunity to go out and enjoy a good meal with good friends. This is an opportunity to go on vacation and enjoy the world. This is, this is, this is my life. 40. Now, 50 year olds. We put it in a shorter thing to make it feel more full, to make you feel better about yourself. <laughs> 50 year olds, 10,000, 10,000. Not weeks, not months, days, 10,000. 60 year olds, 6,000. Days, days, 6,000. 6, you know how fast it goes by. Hey, 70 year olds, about 3,000. Days, days, 75 year olds, 1300 or so days, 
80-year-olds, you owe God four. At least two. Hey, if you're 80, jump up and praise God right now. Because you ought to be dead, but you're not. Right? I, I, I preach, but we won't preach. Hey, here's the thing. Could be more, could be less. But, but this, is, this is our life. If you want your days to count, count your days. And we're tempted to think of counting down. But Moses, I think, is talking about counting up. Because you don't know how many are left, so how can you count down? You can only count up with the one that you've been given. You can't control yesterday, and you can't control waking up tomorrow, but the one thing that you can control is right now, today. I woke up today, and this is the day that the Lord has made. So why shouldn't I rejoice and be glad in it? This is the day that the Lord has made. Why, why shouldn't I take every opportunity to live life to the full? Why shouldn't I laugh today? Why should I not enjoy life today? Why shouldn't I put my arm around somebody and tell them, hey, I love you. I appreciate you. Thank God for you, what you did for me. But we don't do that. I don't do that because we don't count our days. Question, what if today was your last day? Forget what was, forget all the yesterdays. Don't worry about tomorrow. There's no promise of it. And I know when you talk about this stuff, it can seem a bit manipulative, but it's not, this is life. This is, this is what we all know to be true. You've been given a marble today. Whether it counts is totally up to you. What if today was your last day to love your kids, to share with them what you've learned about life. What if today's the last day that you had to go out and have an incredible dinner with incredible friends? What if today's the last day you had to go and to that place you love to go with the people that you love to go there with? What? This, this is today. You can't get it all done today, but, but this is today. What if today is your last day? What would you do? What, what, do, what do you need to do? What should you do? What do you need to do today? For some of you, you need to give your heart to Jesus Christ today. This is your day. This is your opportunity. You don't know if there's another one. You don't know if there's another marble. You don't know if there's another day. Don't lose your opportunity. If this was your last day, why in this world would you not give it to Jesus? For some of you, it would be making a decision to follow Jesus in baptism. It would be recommitting your life. It's your day. This is all you've got. This is all you can do. Forget about yesterday. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today. For those of you who are Jesus followers, it's as simple as laughing more. For some of you, it's lightening up. For some of you, it's having a dinner party. For some of you, it's take that trip. It's acknowledge that call. For some of you, it's chasing that dream. For some of you, it's doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. For some of you, it's setting someone down who's far from God and sharing your faith with them. It's picking up the phone and calling somebody who made a difference in your life at a crucial time in a crucial way and saying, thank you. For some of you, it's that last act of generosity. For some of you, it's that last act of obedience. You don't know if it's the last one. 
but it could be. And Moses says, if you approach life that way, you're set free. You take that marble and you'll live. And then tomorrow, if you get another one, you press repeat and you do it all again. This is not about quitting your job and going to the beach and living out. No, this is about mindset. The question isn't how long will you live, but how much will you live? So if you want your days to count, you gotta count your days. What will you do with this day? And if you get another day tomorrow, what will you do with it? And as Jesus followers, we ought to pray for wisdom. God, teach me to number my days that I may have the wisdom to know what to do. For some of you, there's some things you need to stop doing that you're doing. For some of you, you would change your schedule because you're putting a whole lot of time into things that you're never gonna get anything out of. Next week, it's gonna get uncomfortable here. Next week, we're not even letting children in the auditorium. You're gonna to have to check them in at Kids Creek. We're, we're gonna talk about some sensitive things week two, week three, week four. We're gonna talk about where some of our marbles are going and how they are not for the glory of God. And we're not living. We think we are, but we're not living. But that's next week. But today, what do you need to do? And for many of us, we need to recommit our lives to numbering our days so that we can have wisdom. So that in week two, week three, week four, if we talk about some things that hit us, land in our lap, that we'll have the wisdom to know what to do about it. That we'll have the courage to do something about it, even when it's hard. Count your days you want them to count. What are you going to do with the only thing you have control over? And that's today. Father, speak. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, today's the day. Today's the day. If you're here today and there's areas of your life where you are not obeying Jesus and you know about it, today's the day you recommit your life. If there's been something God's been whispering to you to do, there's something that you need to do, something you need to say, a step you need to take, today's the day. There's been something gnawing at you, you know it every time you hear somebody talk about it, you know you need to do something about it, but you haven't done anything about it, today's the day. Today's the day. So would you pray, God teach me to number my days that I may have wisdom. Father, speak to us. In Jesus' name.